But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and when he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jebusheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah, the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, 
Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours one now, devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Let's pray. Father, this is a pretty heavy chapter. I simply pray that you would be with us, present with us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to to understand and Lord, I pray that on one hand that we would more greatly see and, and hate sin, our own and others, um, but on the, on the other hand, uh, would, would you remind us of your incredible grace and that you have dealt with sin and in Christ it is as far away as the east is from the west. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is a, it's a tragic, it's a confronting, it's a somber chapter, isn't it? Uh, and this morning we are mostly going to be sitting in the murkiness of, of David's sin. And for us, I imagine it's, it's going to bring up some of our own sin as well. It may well also bring up ways in which we've been hurt or grieved by others sin to us as well. But I want to remind us again up front of God's love for you in his son Jesus, whom he sent to live and to die, to overcome sin and death on a cross. We need to be reminded that he offers forgiveness for each and every sin, even the worst of sins. So even as we consider the depravity of of David's sin here today, we must know that while there's clearly repercussions for, for David's sin and his actions here, he has received forgiveness and grace. And so can we through Christ. Uh, today we don't have an outline. I'm actually just going to travel through the passage and, and have us sort of go through it. I'll comment as we go. And it starts with David being in a place where he shouldn't be, doing what he shouldn't be doing when he shouldn't be doing it. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, but David remained in Jerusalem. It's a time when kings should go out, out to war and the role of the king was to go with his people and to, to lead them into battle. But David remains. 
And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. It's easy to miss it, but it's late afternoon and he's getting up from his couch. He's been napping. He's idle and self-indulgent when, when the men of Israel are out fighting a war for his kingdom. And this is, this is important because we have David in this sort of idleness and self-indulgence uh, when there's this opportunity for sin. And the pattern that we see of David's sin here is a pattern we see all through the Bible. He sees something, he wants something, and he takes it. Now, it's the same pattern that we see in the Garden of Eden. They, they saw the fruit, they desired it, they wanted it, and they took it. David is, is walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof, roof a woman bathing. Now, David here, he, the palace presumably is the, the tallest dwelling around, most likely sort of at the top of the hill or whatnot. So he's in an elevated position. Now, he clearly, we've already established, is in the, the wrong place. And he sees this, this woman bathing. Uh, some commentators sort of suggest that she shouldn't be bathing publicly, but I, I just really don't think we can get that from the, the text. Now, clearly, David's in the wrong position here. And even later on, it says that she's purifying herself from her uncleanness. Uh, so she's actually following the regulations of the law there. So she's doing what she should be doing. But David's in a position and, and is not doing what he should be doing. And it's important to note, actually, that, um, that she's purifying herself there. Because that, that means, quite simply, that she's just had her period. Which means that she's not pregnant. So David sees her and he wants her. He says, the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. One said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The fact that David notes that she's beautiful when he's caught her bathing, uh, I think that's also worth noting. Uh, in, in that situation, a, a man is just just needs to avert his eyes straight away. If, if he happens to, to glance something like that, it's to flee from any sort of temptation. Uh, but he obviously looks and notices enough to see that she's beautiful. Uh, it goes on to say there that her name, Bathsheba, she has a father, she has a husband. Our text is noting for us that she is a person. Right, with relationships, people who care for her, who she cares for. But in relation to David in this passage, she's referred to as the woman. Right, we see it here in verse 3, we see it down in verse 5. So David, she's not a person. She's a commodity. And a commodity to take. And that's what he does. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. He takes her. It's fast-paced here, the sin. Now, he is in a position of, of responsibility um, and a position of authority. Uh, he's in a position of power. Right? And he's used that power, and he's abused that power, 
he uses it to take for himself. Now, this passage is described as, as David's adultery. And, and it's very clear that it is David here that is the focus of the adultery. There's cases where there's adultery that um, obviously two people are involved in it. But the, the focus here very, very clearly is, is pointing at David as the one that has the power, has the opportunity, and has the responsibility. Uh, he's the one that, that takes. Uh, adultery or adulterate literally means to destroy or to ruin. And what David does here is to destroy and ruin a marriage. And I think there's some clues, and we'll get to it later, that this is a good marriage. Uh, that he is destroyed and ruined. David is fully responsible. I wonder, are you shocked at David? I think, I think we should be. Of course, sadly, we have a similar shock whenever a, a Christian leader is, is caught in sin. And we hear about it often, don't we? Uh, someone with the re- responsibility who, who uses the power and authority to, to take opportunity to, to sin. Abusive position, sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness. Christians can and we do sin. And sadly, those with more authority often have more opportunity. None of us is immune from a propensity to wander. Been thinking a little bit this week of, of the words in, in, in the hymn, it's over 250 years old, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. Uh, Robert Robinson, the author of that, he penned those words when he was recently, he'd just been converted, he was about 20 years old. Uh, and the, the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We don't know too much about Robert Robinson's life, but, but it's said that those words sort of haunted him a little bit because he was one that was prone to wander. Uh, sadly, it is very true. We can be shocked at, at David's sin here, but, but for the grace of God, so go you and I. Okay? As we're, we're shocked at David's sin, we need to be confronted by our own as well. In verse 5, uh, these are the only words that Bathsheba says in the whole passage, I am pregnant. Now these are words that for a father should be the happiest of words to hear. In the case here, they condemn David's actions and should convict him of his sin so that he can turn and receive forgiveness. But that's not what happened. I said before that the, the pattern of sin in the garden was to, to see, to, to want and to take. What happened after that for Adam and Eve? Well, they hid tried to sew fig leaves together and sort of hide themselves from God. So often that's our pattern as well. When we commit sin, what do we try and do next? We try to conceal it, to cover over it, to hide it. 
What David does is he sends for Uriah. Uh, we see that in verse 6 and 7, he makes some small talk to Uriah. But then in verse 8, we see his first attempt to conceal his sin here. Uh, and, and it's obvious that what he's trying to do is, is get Uriah to, to lay with Bathsheba uh, so that, that it can be assumed and, and thought that this is Uriah's child to, to cover over and conceal his sin. In verse 8, David says to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Now, we might not get it at first glance, the, the meaning there, but go down to your house and wash your feet. Uh, in those days, you would wash your feet before you got into bed. Okay? So he's not so discreetly saying, hey, go down to your house, your wife's there, wash your feet, get into bed. Lie with her. Uh, to, to really make it clear what he means, he sends a present down. I don't know what the sort of ancient equivalent of sort of candles, massage oil, some chocolates maybe, maybe a buble CD, I don't know how that... Um, but, but it's very clear that, that David is saying, hey, go indulge yourself here with your wife. But Uriah doesn't go. And verse 11 is a sort of a, a stunning um, reproof for David who's idle and self-indulgent in this whole story, who's dwelling in, in his palace while God and God's people are dwelling in tents. In, in verse 11, Uriah says, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. So that's tents. My, my, my Lord Job and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And we just looked a couple of weeks ago at chapter 7. Uh, and there, quite wonderfully, sort of David notes that he's in a palace and the, the Lord's in a, in a tent. The ark of the Lord is, is dwelling in a tent. And, and sort of like David, in, in that case, is sort of trying to elevate God by offering to build him a temple. And, and in that story, we saw wonderfully the humility of God to say that, look, his people had been in tents and he was dwelling and associating with his people um, in a tent that he hadn't asked for a temple to be built for him. And here Uriah the Hittite, who's a foreigner, the Hittite, he's a foreigner who's obviously become one of God's people, uh, is associating humbly with God and, and with his people. And it's in stark contrast to David, who's lying on a couch into the afternoon on his house, in his house. Okay, so there's a reproof for David here. And there's a chance for him to repent, another chance. There's many in this passage for David to humble himself and confess. I just want to consider ourselves as well. As we are in sin, we often think that it's concealed. Uh, we, we sort of think that we've hidden it away from people. This is actually a big part for me in, in conversion, that I was, I was in constant sexual sin uh, and, and I thought that it was, was hidden from others' eyes. But God knows. God knows. And it's, 
It's actually a kindness. Every time our conscience is pricked and every time someone says something and they maybe don't know what's going on for us, but it just makes us aware of our sin, that is a kindness. Because it gives us opportunity to repent, to confess our sin and turn to God and receive his forgiveness. And of course, in that, turning to others uh, and asking for forgiveness where we need to. Now, David has another attempt to conceal his sin. Uh, He makes Uriah drunk. Uh, it's, It's David's doing that in verses 12 and 13. It fails again, and so that leads to, to yet a third attempt to conceal. And by the time we get to, to verse 14, uh, he sort of failed at this plan to get Uriah to, to fool him into thinking it might be his child by laying with his wife. And so for David, the, the solution now and the thing on his mind is that Uriah must die. Right? Uriah must die to, to cover up David's sin. So he's committed adultery, uh, but now murder. David deliberately kills someone made in the image of God. And it's sort of a tragic irony that Uriah himself carries his own death sentence. Verse 15, um, David wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fight and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Uh, Just part of the the plan here actually revolves around other people are going to be put in danger just so that Uriah can be killed as well. That's what happens next. Verse 17. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Uriah dies. It's so tragic but here David is getting what he wants. Now, Joab anticipates that David is going to have a negative response to sort of the report from the war because, because of David's instructions, actually quite a lot of people have, have died and they've, they've had some sort of defeat. Uh, and, and you might be thinking, well, why this question about uh, Abimelech um, who, who was killed by a millstone that was thrown by a woman from the wall that died at Thebes? Well... That would have been a story that's very familiar in David's day because only probably a couple of generations before. Um, we find it in Judges chapter 9. And Abimelech, he's just a, he's an evil and he's a foolish leader. And, and we, we see that. And he's so foolish that sort of in his death, he gets too close when he's sieging Thebes to the castle walls and a, and he's, a woman throws a millstone over, over and that's what, what kills him. Okay, so it's a, it's a rebuke here for David because Bimelech's an evil and foolish ruler and, and that's what David is in instructing this sort of action against the city. Now the messenger reports to David and, and the only detail that it seems like David is concerned about is that Uriah is dead. And David responds with such a hard heart in verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Don't let 
this matter to please you, displease you. Now, literally, that phrase there means don't let this be evil in your sight. Again, David is minimising his sin. He's covering it up. He's concealing it. He is deceiving himself that this sin isn't so bad, that it's now covered up, that it's done with. That it doesn't need to be seen as evil. The human heart can be so deceptive, can't it? Don't we try to do that ourselves? Probably with our own sin. As a society, we, we, we're doing that right now in so many different ways. We're, we're calling what is evil in the sight of God to be good in different ways. Uh, I know some of these are controversial, but abortion. I would call something that is evil in our society good. Sex outside of marriage is, is celebrated in our culture, sustained as something evil that we're calling good. Oh, there's just many ways that we individually and corporately deceive ourselves. We have an amazing ability to deceive ourselves that it is not evil when it is. And we can see that it's evil because verse... Verse 26 is, is just tragic. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Lament is a, is a very strong word. Uh, she's devastated. This is one of the clues that points us to the fact that this was a, a good marriage that David destroyed. Another clue that we get that this was a good marriage is actually found in the genealogy of Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 1. Read through that genealogy and it's sort of all the ancestors following the kingly line of, of Jesus. It obviously passes through David. And when it talks about David's son Solomon, it says that she was the, the son of uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And it's very interesting how that's that's put in there firstly to, to show that even even David's most grievous sins and he is, he is still by grace in the, the lineage of Jesus the very one that saves him from his sin uh, but I think it's also highlighting uh, that this was a, a good marriage that David's sin had destroyed so David in verse 27 he brings her into the house when the morning was over, David sent, brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore a son. Now, you could think, well, sort of kind of David to bring her into the house. I mean, otherwise she'd be, be homeless. <laughs> but how would you feel about being in the house of the man who has taken you, who has destroyed your marriage, who has killed your husband. There's yet another act of deception here by David. Right? This whole passage is just a woeful story of sin, 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 sin. 
idleness, lust, adultery, deception, coercion, murder. So how do you feel towards David? Disgusted? Angry? Shocked? I think we should feel all of those things. I certainly do as I've been reading through this. Just, It's hard not to feel that way towards David. Feel some anger. Want some vengeance. I want to point my finger at him and accuse him for all these things that he has done. But if I'm going to point my finger at David, then the reality is I also need to point my finger at myself. I too am a sinner. I too have hurt people grievously. I've done hateful things against God. Sometimes I might have deceived others or concealed that, but God knows. God knows. In verse 26, 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That same word displeased, it's evil in his sight. Now we expect God to, to point the finger just as we do. And it, it is very true that, that he judges and condemns sin. He hates sin. He knows the offence of sin. He knows the effects of sin. And his holiness, far greater than ours, far infinitely greater, demands justice. So what does God do? He sends. Start of chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now David and Nathan, we'll look at this in the coming weeks. We're going to look at Psalm 51 next week. David's beautiful repentance. Um, and, and chapter 12, two weeks after this. Um, we're going to look at, at, um, at what happens in this chapter but we see that Nathan has been sent to shine a light on David's sin so that he would actually confront it, would confess it, and turn away from it. All right, in sending Nathan the prophet, God is showing an incredible kindness to David because he is, op- he is actually giving an opportunity to repent and turn and be forgiven, be restored. See, to deal with sin, God, our God, he doesn't simply condemn, doesn't merely point the finger at us, but he sends. And beautifully and wonderfully, he has sent his own son to deal with our sins. The book of Hebrews I've just found this so helpful this week. In, in, in verse 13, uh, we're told, no creature, oh, sorry, verse 13 of chapter 4, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
God knows. Nothing is hidden from his sight. But goes on to talk about how we have a great high priest in Jesus. Goes on to talk about how he is able to sympathise with our weakness. He's able to sympathise with all the trials and the challenges, all of the sort of opportunities to sin that are before us. He's been tempted in every respect and yet without sin. Our God sent his own son to dwell, to live on this earth, faced with every temptation and trial that we could ever conceive. And yet he is without sin. And yet this holy, unblemished son of God willingly went to his own death to pay the price that sin deserves. Because a holy, righteous God needs to judge and condemn sin. He has done that in his son for our sake. I love how a couple of times in the Bible when talking about what Jesus did on the cross, it uses the, the, the phrase is the propitiation for our sin. Now that word propitiation means that he fully exhausted God's wrath. Right? He has completely taken the, the punishment that our sin deserves. It is done. That's why we can say as far as the east is from the west, in Christ Jesus, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. And so Hebrews 4 it goes on to say, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He invites us to come to receive his mercy and grace. He has sent his son so that we would know this. If we're honest with ourselves, we do need to point the finger at ourselves. We are sinners. As we point the finger, I think we should turn from our sin, follow where it's pointed, and turn to the open arms of our God and Saviour who offers us grace and mercy. I'm going to give opportunity now for us to do that. Have a time of, of prayer. And I'm not going to actually say so much. I'm going to leave periods of silence where we're going to be able to confess. And I want us to, to have a chance to confess, feel the weight of our sins, but I'm also going to lead us in turning and receiving uh, the love of God. I'm actually going to take the posture of kneeling for this prayer. We don't sort of do that often in church, but I think confession of sin is just actually a really helpful, humble posture. So you don't have to, but feel free to, to join me in, in kneeling now as I lead us in a time of prayer and confession.
Father. We confess that we are sinners and that we have sinned in thought, in word and in deed. Father, we have sinned in trying to cover up and conceal our sins, trying to make our own fig leaves rather than turn to you. Father, we have sinned not only in what we have done, uh, but in the, the good things that we have failed to do, that we have not done. We join with the, the tax collector as he cried out on his knees, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Father, we do pray this and I pray that we would know this deeply, that you are the God of mercy and grace and that you do forgive us as we sin against you and one another. As we come in the name of the Lord Jesus and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're actually going to respond by singing Come Thou Fount.
Uh, I think it's hopefully a, a helpful and an encouraging way to respond. Just before, before we do that, just wanted to invite um, anyone that's, that's been stirred up through this sermon. I uh, want to invite you to, um, to share with maybe someone that you know well, if, if appropriate, uh, anything that's been stirred up. I uh, want to encourage us to, to point one another to the compassionate love of our Saviour. And it would be helpful, um, I'll, I'll stay at the front for a little while afterwards, but feel free to come and talk to me um, about anything. Uh, but I particularly encourage us as we sing this song, this, this first verse that's, that's up on the screen near uh, these are the words that would just love to resonate in our hearts and remind us of God's fount of every blessing, of his dreams of mercy never ceasing, uh, of, of his heart of grace, and as we sing it, that, that our hearts would be bound to his. So let's sing. <laughs>